Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, as a result of the current world pandemic and the social isolating, quarantining and so on, I can't invite people around to do podcasts at the studio. So we will be conducting all podcasts via the phone. I am very new to this. I'm going to try my best to make this as good as possible. Now up first, we have the incredibly talented headshot photographer and film director, Alan Howard. So Alan Howard uh, of Alan Howard's Headshots, how are you doing? Very well. How are you coping with the current times? Yeah, you know, it's it's. I mean, it's obviously been a been a bit strange um, these Corona times. I actually had Corona two weeks ago, so that was you that had was it. Yeah, yeah, I got oh it. Oh my early. goodness! I'm always always an early adopter. Um, you were so, you were in it before it was cool. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm already bored of it and uh, ready for the next thing. So, yeah. t- so tell me about it. How did you find out you had it? What was it like? Um, like I had a fever and then a uh, a cough. I've still actually got a bit of a cough. We're now like two weeks later, and you get like it. It. I mean, it lingers. It's it's tedious. Um, it's yeah. like I mean, I had it in what I think is the eighty percent um, of things where it's just like you know, it's not it's not going to knock you out. It's just an unpleasant week. But um, that's that's the percentage you you want to be in. Oh my goodness! So I'm I'm glad to hear that you're at least recovering to an extent. Yeah, no, I'm 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 now fine, and obviously we're just in this in this very strange period where um, uh, I I I I I live in a, a live work studio, so and yep. I've sort of had had some some brave souls for a, a, a couple of weeks, and then obviously the total lockdown has uh, has stopped everything. Um, so yeah, just kind of. <laughs> trying to find things to do at the moment doing a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of learning of uh, new things and stuff while I'm while I'm in my downtime well I think that's what people have got to use the time for right is to kind of learn something or just absorb some information I, I've I've used it to kind of um, watch a lot of uh, a lot of films that I'm perhaps not normally uh, going to choose to watch in my free time and to do a lot of um, sort of studying of photographic stuff that I don't know much about just so that I yeah. come out of this a slightly better person yeah no exactly I like to be honest I'm I, I've got so many things I I want to get done that I've kind of been putting off for ages at the moment I'm still in this like oh my god what do I pick to to do first I'm like learning to draw learning some like photoshop stuff that I haven't I've sort of put off for ages getting back on video editing I hadn't edited a video for like 10 years and I'm like oh you know what I should actually pick that back up as a skill um and just like yeah I'm, I'm playing some computer games and watching movies yeah it's a lot better than just kind of sitting around doing TikToks and posting them on the internet to annoy other people, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not on. I'm not on TikTok yet. I was a late comer to Instagram. I'm like, oh right, okay, I'm a bit behind on. Yeah, I think um, I, I think I'm always happy to just be unfashionable and out of favour and untrendy. I'm I'm fine with that. Yeah. So um, let's just sort of move away from Corona, thankfully, and let's, let's talk about you as a photographer. How did you how did you get started? How long has it been? You know, what what pulled you in? How did it all start? Um, so there's kind of two two steps. So uh, well, so I'm 38 now. Um, mm-hmm. When um, I first um, did any kind of professional photography, I was 16. I used to shoot um, hip hop album covers for a little little label like not but you know not for much money but i used to get like 100 quid for an album cover which when you're 16 was very exciting and um i it it was kind of pocket money and that was all before before uni um and then so so it was a bit strange in that i'd kind of done a bit of professional photography um before i even really had considered it as a job and then 
I, I went to I, I directed music videos for a little bit, never particularly good at it. Um, and then the music industry was kind of collapsing. Um, like filmmaking's always been my ambition, I think. Um, I've directed one feature film, which was about 10 years ago. It was called The Drum and Will. Um, you won't have seen it. Um, unless it's people <laughs> in the US. People in the US may have seen it. Um, okay. Because it did it did okay in the US. It didn't do particularly well in the UK. Um, and then I came, like, photography, because I write and direct. Photography was just meant to be a way to pay my bills while I'm while I'm writing. But at the moment, okay. I'd say I'm more kind of, I'm kind of obsessed at the moment with, uh, like, I shoot um, portraits, specifically um, actors' headshots. And it's such yep. a simple, it's such a simple photo. It's such a, like, a, there's kind of restrictions on what it can be. It's just this sort of very pure little thing. And I'm kind of, at the moment, it's, it's, it's a really creative outlet for me. I don't know. I kind of, I... I've got so into it. I spend all of my time literally thinking about how to perfect these really basic portraits. And I kind of know, I wish I found it um, earlier. So yeah, yeah. to go back to your thing, I've been doing headshots for, I think about eight years now. Um, okay. So just, so, just so, about figuring that out now. So to, to sort of hone in on headshots then, is that mm. because of your association with actors? It seemed like a logical progression. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's the thing I enjoy. Um, enjoy the most is working with a person and directing like I could uh, I, I like directing and I, I don't think I could ever do something like photographing like a wedding because my, my instinct would be to you know be like hold up there let's you know let's reblock this this isn't working <laughs> you know it's, it's just, I don't think I'm, I'm I'm particularly good like documentary photographer although I quite like things like street photography I don't like shooting them. I, I like I like the art and I can see it but my, my instinct is always to to kind of get in the thick of it and move everyone about and put people where I, where I want them. Okay. So when it comes to your directing style, when you're doing headshots, you know, how much of it is kind of pre-production where you talk them through what they're going to be doing? How much of it is the fact that they're already an actor that they know what they're doing? You know, how does, how does that all work out? Well, 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 that's it, right? It depends on, it depends on the person. Um, I try and be led by the person as much as possible. Like some people won't really want, um, any direction some people you can sort of sense like uh you need to tell them literally everything I never sort of um decided on how I was going to address that but I will say definitely all this headshot photography has made me a much better director than I was when I was directing films um and you can tell if you look at my film it's got some really not brilliant performances in it and I definitely <laughs> because because I'd come from like a technical background um I was so much more comfortable just with that bit. So I'd go and chat with the DOP and we would, you know, <laughs> absolutely nail the shots and everything. And I let some of the performances um, get away from me. But I think okay. now it's just, it's just a question of, you can kind of direct people in any way you want, as long as you're just really respectful of them and you kind of let them, let them go where they, where they want to go and then kind of nudge them in direction. So actually most of my direction in headshots tends to be like 80% of it just kind of, more technical things like, you know, you know, lower chin a little bit, like lower, you know, just, just little things on like, um, positioning. Um, yep. it's only if I find that they're, they may be just, they're getting a bit, sometimes it can just be a bit nothingy. And then you just kind of go, well, let's pick a direction to sort of, to push it further in. Like if, 
if they seem like they have quite an innocent casting, you go, cool, right? Let's try and push it more towards like the most innocent kind of look we can get or... Yeah, no, I, one of the things I've always found when it comes to um, uh, to sort of directing people when it comes to portraits and whatnot is there are some people it's really good to go with um, sort of the complimentary way of kind of encouragement. And then there are the other, the other people that it can be quite good to kind of corner them a little bit and push them and see how they, um, in a respectful way, but to sort of push their buttons and see uh, how sort of, much you can kind of push them to get a kind of more uh, um, visceral reaction or to, to kind of, you know, to, if you just ask someone to smile, you never get a real smile. So sometimes it's about yeah. pushing them a little bit. Oh, I almost never, I, I, that's like my hardest thing. If people want, want smiley photos, I, if, unless people specifically mention it, then they're probably not going to leave my shoot with a smiley photo. I kind of hate them. It's so difficult yep. to get something like that, that it doesn't look either cheesy or just really awkward like the only and if you sort of flick through my insta you'll 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 then see this is true i don't think i ever have anyone smiling to camera any of the smiles are staged to look like a slight candid thing like with someone else yep. in the room yeah, yeah yeah definitely that always looks much more natural because plausibly there, there could have been um and so like, so I, looking so i'm looking at your insta now mm. and um one thing I'd say is it feels like there's a lot of depth to all your images. Obviously, there's there's something I definitely want to touch upon is your color your color work because there's definitely the, oh, I think great. that's where the real the real cinema lies in your images. But you have um you have some real depth to it. I think a lot of that is down to having quite a narrow depth of field in a lot of shots and having yes. some light leaks in front and having something behind the actor that's not just a you know a flat surface. Um, yeah. How do you go about building up your um, you know, the depth of your shot. How did that style well, come that's, about? That's that's one of the things that I've I've owned it for for a bit. With like the confidence to to, to kind of because I think in headshots, to be honest, I'm the only person I've seen having anything um, in the foreground. Like, yeah. I, 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 you, it's really rare to see it because I think it's kind of counterintuitive when you're all about like an actor making a connection to stick something between them and the camera. Um, yeah. But once you start doing it, it does. It gives you this intriguing, like, cinematic quality, right? It feels like you're kind of peering in on someone's world if you've got something between between you and them. And obviously, it's used all the time in in movies. Um, so yeah, I, I like I like as you say three layers. Yeah, so you know a nice a nice background actor there, and then sometimes either I can try and sort of conflate a bit of lens flare into it or it will just literally be like things between me and the thing like a bit of bit of polyboard if i'm in the studio or like something actually out on the street um but yeah just something to give it a little bit of a little bit of framing it's quite tricky because i used to kind of my earlier stuff i would have these really cinematic shots that looked like shots from movies but they definitely wouldn't be headshots you would kind of have to go to people okay look here's your simple headshot and this will look nice next to it on spotlight and it kind of it was more of a mock-up of like a production still or something um but now i've I've started to find like some of my favorite shots are ones which they don't look like a headshot but they fulfill all the criteria for what a headshot needs to be in that it's like a nice close-up of the face and it's in portrait and it makes a connection all of those things but at the same time it also looks like a shot from a movie they're kind of my favorite things and that's what i try and get um in most sessions now but yeah um 
there's a lot of debt. Also, I recently moved to, I, I, I heard this on one of your other uh, things. Someone else was talking about um, GFX. Um, I moved to a Fuji GFX, so I have oodles of um, debt now. Well, that's perfect. That gives me the perfect segue to talk uh, about camera gear. It's probably my worst subject to talk about because... Um, <laughs> really? Well, I'm such a nerd. I'm going to be like all over this. I, well, I absolutely love camera gear, but one of the problems I find is that I when I... So I do some workshops over the course of the year, and over the last sort of five years, I found so many people think that the only difference between... Um, a good photo and a bad photo is the gear. And most of the time, the problem lies in technique, not in what you're holding. Yeah, yeah. And so that's actually, why I have that. Sorry, I, go on. I so, no, no, no. And I so heard that. And I because what you say, like, I do a lot of, like, depth of field stuff. And I, I felt for a while that I was relying on narrow depth of field way too much. And for mm-hmm. um, then I moved to Fuji, like, regular Fuji, like an X-T3 for a year and a half so i had i was on a crop sensor which for a portrait photographer is like quite quite strange not having a full frame and not having as much depth um but i i quite liked it to kind of test myself to be like can i still do this stuff with with a smaller sensor and without that just being able to kind of have huge blur um this sounds exactly like my last 12 months so i was right. i was shooting on canon full frame for uh, about six years, and then I switched to the Fuji XT3. Same okay. thing. I felt like I felt like I was being over reliant on sort of being able to just eviscerate backgrounds and um, yeah. I, the the switch. So I do weddings and I do portraits. I will completely agree for portraits. It can be a slightly terrifying thing um, because you lose a weapon essentially. Yeah. Um, but I I'm uh, because of my wife I've now switched to Sony because she wanted to switch to Sony so I've just done what I'm told. Um okay. But I having now used a GFX um I used the 50S. Yeah, that's what um, I have. That's what I have. They're a really I have good to say price it's beautiful. Now, like the, the the 50S it's like I didn't want to spend 6000 pounds on it. That was too mental. But my my 50s i think it was under three grand secondhand it was a very reasonable like it was the same price you're used to paying for a full frame a high-end full frame camera which seemed yeah. more reasonable to me so when you're um conducting a shoot um so you have an actor come into the studio you're gonna you're gonna go through how many sets are you doing how much are you shooting per set what's the sort of time scale uh actually i shoot a lot um a lot less shots now on the on the gfx because it it it's a, a I shoot everything manual focus and it's a bit slower to process. I shoot everything tethered as well, so it's a little bit of a slower kind of each click and shot is a bit slower. So probably if you don't mind session, me jumping in real quick, sorry, please do. Um, why manual focus and what lens are you using? Um, I shoot so I don't have any of the actual GFX lenses because what I wanted is um this huge depth of field and i probably shouldn't even say this because so few people seem to realize this and it's kind of key okay so the gfx has this sensor that's like 1.8 times the size of a um full frame sensor but Mm -hmm. almost pretty much any lens you get a full frame lens over about 80 mils although to be honest even most 50s will almost all portrait lenses cover the full sensor. Um, And most of them are sharp pretty much all the way across it. So like 
the, okay, so my main go-to lenses, let's have a look through some of these. The Zeiss 135 F2 is incredible, covers the whole thing. The Zeiss 100 uh, F2 macro, that's incredible and covers the whole thing. That's also, by the way, the sharpest lens I've ever seen in anything. It, like, for most people, you have to go, okay, we're not using this. It's punishing. Um, it's, <laughs> it's like you need to be really young and drink a lot of water to to, to work to get to get away with the uh, uh, the hundred um, or the Zeiss eighty five. So basically, I've, I, like, just if you have I, Zeiss have recently, I say recently in the last five years or so, they they changed all these lenses out for what is now their Milvus range. Before mm-hmm. those, the non weather sealed ones, Zeiss just had these beautiful black metal like uh manual focus lenses they made for full frame and i've pretty much got a full set of those and they so um certainly for a portrait photographer full i've got like the 85 100 and 135 and they all work incredibly well on the gfx there's a couple of other ones which are just really good portrait lenses the nikon 105 uh dc which stands for defocus control which was a mm-hmm. lens nikon made with a specific focus on bokeh and yep. um it's pretty amazing and also covers the full frame on um, on the GFX. Um, and they're all manual focus. Well, all the Zeiss ones are actually just manual focus lenses, but the other ones, because they're adapted and um, there is no way to get them autofocus on the GFX. Also, from what I understand, the, G- the autofocus on the, on the 50S is pretty slow anyway. Um, I think the I 100 used... is better, but yeah. So I used it with the 63mm. The, 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 obviously the Fuji lens, the 63 mil. I didn't find it bad, um, but uh, the focus is fine, but I just found on a couple of occasions, it did do quite a bit of seeking. Um, right. Wh- when it wasn't reliant on face detect, it was, it was seeking quite a bit. Right. And I mean, I, mean, and that's, I suppose sometimes... that's the low end, right? That's the low end yeah, lens, exactly. I guess. It is the low end of, well, and it, it doesn't have, um, I get computer. No, uh, it doesn't have phase detect. It only has contrast detect. I think so. It's it's like uh, a generation behind what you would be used to. With like your Sony is going to have way better autofocus than it by a long, long way. Yeah, um, but that has no soul. <laughs> no, actually, that's true. I did use to shoot Sony, and I I I feel that actually you're right. Everything else has. I also I have a um, a Nikon Z6 as my sort of second camera now, and it is. It's like the Sony, but with a soul. It does feel a little bit like like every other company has a bit more heart to them. Even Canon, I don't really like Canon, but yeah. I mean, Canon Canon to me is like the really good looking X that had the worst personality. Like I miss it, (laughs) but yeah, no, I'm 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 well off the Canon train in a lot of ways. Um, But everyone I talk to about the Sony, I say it's completely soulless, and everybody agrees with me. So it's hard to put into words, but everyone agrees. Yeah, it's it's for it's for the people who want the biggest technical clout for their for their buck and yeah. yeah but I don't think anyone's going to go oh no but it, it you know it fills me with passion whereas Fuji people are going to talk talk nonstop about about Soul to explain why it's only got a tiny sensor <laughs> yeah exactly exactly they're going to compensate and I, I'm completely on board so let's let's go back to your your shooting process you're not shooting too much like set per set how many sets are you doing with actors and I don't so really, um, yeah, I, I, I don't really time it. Well, um, it's probably about f- sort of five setups in the studio in, in a standard session. But what the way I now have it, um, I can change a setup very quickly because, okay, 
this is going to require a whole other conversation. But what I use is, uh, is for my key light is a, is a Kino flow, like a four foot Kino flow. Um, mm -hmm. With, um, I have the, the bulbs are in, I think we call it a salt and pepper configuration. So you have like daylight color, then tungsten color, then daylight color, then tungsten color. And right. you can turn them um, on and off independently. So what I'll tend to do is start and everything else I keep in the studio daylight balanced. So what I'll do is start with like half tungsten, half daylight as my key light. And then everything else will be daylight balanced. So there'll be this quite sort of cinematic blue to the background with a warm on the subject. And I then see. I can just to change a setup, I can just switch it to say daylight for the key light and change my white balance in camera. And then suddenly everything will be warm or you can go the other direction and switch it to fully tungsten for the key light. Everything in the background will go really blue. So like without moving and just with flicking a few switches, I can do kind of three different color tones yeah. um, in the studio. So yeah, that would be like three setups in 20 minutes without really changing much at all if they just change the top or whatever. Okay. Okay. So, um, obviously in the studio, you get to be God cause you're controlling all the lighting and, and you're basically in control of the elements. When you go out of the studio, do you like that sort of lack of control or well, you know, no, which side do you well, prefer? Well, that's the really, no, I, I definitely prefer control. I am a total mm -hmm. control freak. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's what's really true in the studio. Sometimes I try and bring natural light into it and it just annoys me because I'll get like a really, nice shot and then i'll just be annoyed because i only managed to get it because it was a really sunny day um and then i'm just like well that's that's only going to happen about like 10 percent of the days in in the uk so it's yeah. annoying that i can't replicate it exactly whereas if you get a shot in the studio with entirely artificial light i'm like brilliant that one goes straight in my you know recipe book of something i can well the exactly only time replicate. we get good weather in the uk is when we're in isolation we get good yeah, weather exactly. in isolation. it's been lovely right yeah yeah it's been mind-blowingly annoying <laughs> yeah yeah um, um no outside i find it um i i don't know it's if it's sunny and i've got this like really contrasty light cool and we can absolutely find um yeah that's really interesting and exciting to to play with but generally the, the problem is it's just flat and just everything looks the same and there's no there's no interesting bit of light to find because it's just a flat cloudy day and there's there's not a lot you can do with it Absolutely. It's um how I think if you're gonna be a photographer in England, you either have to learn to use your own lighting or you have to learn to love overcast flatness. Yeah. Well that's that's, that, pretty... that's it, right? And how much lighting can you can you I've tried various different ways of like uh sort of tying monopods to lamp posts and <laughs> stuff. And I, I sometimes bring like I, I usually bring at least one light outside, but usually I just use it as like a kicker. So nothing with a, with a modifier on it, but the, I have tried, you know, taking big, um, and obviously the problem with a flat day is you can't really use a particularly hard light source as, as like a key light. Cause it's just going to look really, really fake. So you have to, to, to balance out like a flat day, you need like a giant umbrella or something, which would be fine, except, uh, England also has the tendency to have like 20 mile an hour winds most days. And so yeah. like umbrellas and softboxes are just really, really challenging to, to use. So usually the only um, extra light I bring um, outside is, is just like a, 
a little a little AD two hundred, a little uh, one of the little Godox ones, just yeah, um, yeah. stuck stuck on like a tripod, um, and that just gives me like a like a rim light kicker. Um, um, and then I'll just contour it in Photoshop to try and make it look a bit more punchy. Yeah, and especially like with uh, looking at some of your images now, some of the um, I think having that really like thin depth of field really helps as well to kind of pull someone when the lights maybe not pulling them out yeah. of the background. Yeah, um, exactly. So if we could just sort of change gears and just talk about your sort of influences over the time that you've been doing it, you know, I'm, I'm assuming quite a lot of it comes from films rather than necessarily yeah. photographers. Or, or, yeah. who, who, who are your influences? Well, uh, yeah, it's almost entirely going to be, I'm such a photography philistine. I barely was aware of sort of successful photographers. I like discovered Annie Leibovitz like three years ago. I'm like, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> look how good the color grade on all this stuff is. Um, no, like for, for me, it's like I grew up with So like, um probably david fincher would be the biggest influence and just oh, we are friends that right, is, good. <laughs> he's one of my absolute favorites so i'm okay Carry and definitely on, sorry. visually you can find like a frame from a fincher film and you can say yeah that's a fincher film obviously he's not yeah. like the colorist but his his look and the effect he had over almost all of cinema um is really really profound and also we're going to talk about coloring he's the master of the green channel like oh, yeah. <laughs> like there's, it's so so good he uses green in such a lovely way that can either yep. be like really sort of 70s or like you know deeply modern and kind of clear oh my god anyway so fincher and fincher and green uh we like kubrick i love i love kubrick um that was my first person i kind of when i discovered like what a director is and you go oh my god okay this guy this guy is the business um yeah. but yeah they're, they're almost all going to be kind of spike jones maybe from from a, a kind of i like his um his aesthetic and this kind of more so in i mentioned i uh, directed music videos a little bit things like like the the early sort of spike jones with beastie boys and stuff like that that kind of um dirty edgy aesthetic and they're not really caring it doesn't look super polished and that just kind of playing yeah. with kind of with the form in that way i think that would be a big yeah i mean i remember um watching so i'm a huge fincher fan anyway and i remember watching zodiac what's your favorite one by the way i was gonna say yeah because like, zodiac is like my favorite film of all time I think it's really it's, underrated. it's one of the most underrated films, I think, yeah. in terms of it just because he's got so many in his catalogue, people don't even realise that exists in most conversations I've had where you mm. talk about him. Um, and one of the things I loved about it was that it's the it's the pinnacle of movement for the sake of of it being important to the story as opposed to just constantly moving the camera and constantly, yeah. you know, everything felt considered in that film and it made you focus on the story so much more than on the, on the framing. The The film's beautiful, but it kind of happens organically as opposed to, it just feels like changing shots and movement for the sake of it. I, I, I love that film so much. But there's, there's a shot above, you probably know about this. There's a shot above above the uh, the taxi cab before the taxi driver is is killed. Uh, that's yep. a, a spoiler for anyone who's not aware of the works of the Zodiac Killer. Um, <laughs> the, um, um, uh, there's a shot that's it's 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 done as if it was like a drone, and the drone was sort of locked onto the top of the cab, so it turns exactly with the cab um, yep. in a very kind of it's it's just unsettling because it's a shot that definitely when that film came out we'd never seen before because it feels like a yeah. giant crane 
um, that shot is entirely CGI. There's no um, real elements in it. It's basically, it's like watching Toy Story 2. Um, they spent one and a half million dollars to essentially get that effect of the camera being locked to the top of a cap. Um, I did not which is know an that. Ama- it's an amazing like piece of auteuring that I don't think they'd let any other director do. No, 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 definitely not. He's um he's definitely um I don't even know how to describe him. He, I, he's obviously incredibly um specific in his and, and elaborate in the way that he puts together scenes and close-ups are intentional and they're they're mm-hmm. meant to serve a purpose, which is always um, one of my biggest problems with, I, I watch a lot of films and I just find constantly moving the camera defies the point of having the blocking, defies the point of the performances. If the the, the viewer never gets to settle into an angle and actually understand the scale yeah. of the scene. Not to sound like I, I know watched, what I'm talking um, about by any stretch. No, no, it's totally, it's totally right. I, I watched um, the film uh, Sling Blade. Um, okay. Billy Bob Thornton um, directed it. I think it's I think it's where people first saw Billy Bob Thornton. It's like late nineties, um, I think. I so I'd never seen it before. I know, but I remember people it being quite a big deal at the time. Um, but it's directed by Billy Bob Thornton, and I don't think he was particularly interested in like. Well, no, it'd be unfair to say, but basically, it's done in about maybe ten long takes because it was a play previously. So it's just these. It's essentially he's just adapted the play, but just had like these sort of eight minute vignettes just kind of play out. And it's it's kind of what you're talking about. It 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 has that tension of a play because you know the the take is just gonna run and run and you get to go look at these people acting because you know they're not editing together a performance. It's like the the performance is there for you to to observe. Well, I think that's where where sort of action scenes and choreograph scenes most of cinema now is just so choppy and constantly cutting in and out of different angles. I think the the reaction to that is films like 1917, where it's the tension in the in the length of the take is is so yeah. amazing. No, I, I think uh, it's so just I a just, reaction just to how bad that. it is in cinema generally. No, I get it, but I, there's a different tension in 1917, and I find that you get the same tension in Children of Men, which has these really long yes. takes. Where it, but it totally takes me out of it. I'm just worried for the people in the take, and I'm going, oh, it, it's <laughs> like it, it's it's not. It's yeah, I'm worried people are going to mess up a line. I'm looking for like squibs not going off and stuff. I'm totally thrown out of 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 the scene. It's really strange. I actually can't. Um, Less so, I felt a little safer in 1917. Children of Men, I find unwatchable because it just puts me on edge in like a really bizarre technical way. Russian Ark, I don't even get me started. I, I decided not to watch that. It's ridiculous. The whole thing was actually in, I think it's one actual 90-minute take, which I, I find insufferable. It, that's due to your, your, obviously, your insider knowledge of it. That's That's why the tension is for you, I guess. I guess, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to watch that film without it at least depending on how quickly you notice you're you're, at some point you're going to go there's a lot of long take in this film even any any person who's going to notice it would be like watching 1917 without going is it going to cut at some point yeah (laughs) but uh, do you know what it's funny because i i brought up um i I thought 1917 technically is the best film i've seen for a very very long time um and we, we we were very blessed late last year with Films like Parasite, Lighthouse, 1917, and so on. 
And um, I brought up 1917 to someone as a recommendation. And the guy said, that's not realistic to the real war. And I was like, okay, I, like I just, I have no interest in continuing this conversation with you whatsoever. You, <laughs> was it you not? forty year old man that's never been to war. <laughs> yeah, and also uh, the first world war, not just the second. It's like, nah, I wouldn't have been like that. But no, I, I, it seemed realistic enough. I don't. What what bit didn't he think was realistic? Uh, do you know what? For me, the 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 thing that sold nineteen seventeen to me was the fact that, that was the casting. They were boys. Mm. They weren't men. Yeah. Like every old war film, everyone's got a moustache and he's like fifty five, and it makes no sense because those and weren't some proper the people. acting as well, right? I mean, I think that's the yeah. Sam Mendes thing of like they're going to be talented theatre actors because these are people you need to know are going to be able to sustain long takes, and it's not because that many technical elements that can go wrong the last thing you want is someone like fluffing a line when you've just dropped like two and a half million quid's worth of pyrotechnics around them exactly yeah i mean like you look at um benedict cumberbatch has an incredibly small role yeah in in sort of in perspective of the whole film but you wouldn't want to give that to someone that's kind of they'll give it a go you know we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. see how it turns out <laughs> this, like, this is going to sound pivotal. really mean but like do you notice in the harry potter films whenever like the later ones it's like i mean they're okay but whenever they have long takes you're just like oh my god it's it, it suddenly becomes crawling and it's just you know they weren't quite i think they edit around those performances quite a lot when they, they yeah. I mean, it's not their fault the kids were basically learning to act by doing you know and it yeah. was like but whenever they try and do, there's like a one and a half minute take on on the train, and you're just going, "Oh bloody hell, this is going really slow." Yeah, no, it's it's. Um, I think that obviously a lot of people don't realise the difference between theatre actors and movie actors in the sense that a movie actor does a lot of short bursts and they get a lot of cracks at the whip, and a theatre actor, you know, you you're in you're in for the long haul, and you don't get to kind of redo it and make everyone close their eyes for a minute and sort of shout you know <laughs> action um yeah. as far as as far as it goes with you from a visual sense um what films do you recommend people watch to kind of inspire them in a in a sense as a photographer uh what are ones that are really striking well I, because we've been talking about 1917 any kind of roger deacon's ones but everyone talks about them so much actually i'll tell you what uh the man who wasn't there uh which is um a Coen Brothers film that Roger Deakin shot back when he was still shooting all the Coen Brothers films. I think he kind of pretty much still is shooting all the Coen Brothers films in black and white. Yeah. Um, um, that one is probably the film you most watch and just go, actually everything in it looks like a poster. Um, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's got, it's so, it's so visually arresting. So from a stills perspective, because, because they, it's like every frame looks like a still. Um, also, I think it's technically quite interesting because um, it was shot on film. This was in like late days of film, but um, uh, they were no Kodak were no longer making the black and white film that um, Roger Deakins wanted, and I think it was shot on color film and then and then cross processed to black and white ah. in, in quite interesting ways. I can't remember exactly, but I remember it being quite a like all 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 things are really technically interesting Roger Deakins oh fun things from Roger Deakins as well like that um are really fun from portraits and so I do shoot with long lenses mostly um but if you watch any uh Roger Deakins film he uses 
quite wide lenses for for close-ups so usually like a 28 or a 35 so there's a really like, good um there's a really good interview with one of the cohen brothers where he talks about that ah. and he says if I so they're, they're they're filming him for the interview and he just hijacks the interview and starts sort of not like telling the cameraman what mistakes he's made and he's right. like you see the way you've got this framed up you're using a, a, like a I think it was like a 90 mil or whatever you're using a fairly long yeah. lens there's no personality to this I'm over there I'm not in the conversation with the person listening to it whereas if you yeah. and he makes them switch a lens and right. they switch it to a wider. He's like, now bring it in closer. And they bring it in closer. And he's like, now it feels like you're having a conversation with me. Now it feels like we know each other. And now it feels like you're part of the scene. Well, there you go. There you go. And just, and certainly in terms of something um, which is quite interesting from headshots, it's like, yeah, that's that, that's that trade-off. So a headshot should be about, um, it should be flattering generally, depending on the person's casting but it, the other way to go is it should all be about character so shooting someone like in quite a close-up portrait with a 28 is not usually very flattering it's going to exaggerate facial features yep. but yep. depending on the person's casting type especially with these like we're talking about like co brother films all of the characters are such characters like that could yep. be the way to shoot to shoot the headshot you want to be exaggerating what makes that actor unique rather than just being whatever the most flattering look of them is well, would you say that the difference as well between um, sort of cinematically creating a still and then cinema itself is that a, because it's a, a, a photograph, you have a lot longer to study every element of it. It stays still for you to look at it. So the the unflattering parts of it become more and more prominent the, the longer you look at it, where with with um, with movies and with, with anything moving, essentially, because it's moving, you don't have time to completely focus in on one element as much yeah it's 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 both of those things but it's also kind of like because it is just one frame like you don't get there's no uh, other frames to kind of disprove any anything you get from it so it's whatever yep. like expression they're at in just that moment you're making your entire judgment on that person in that which is like a real strength of them they don't need to get every shot right in a session to ha suddenly have a moment that's really really intriguing and the same goes yeah. for like costume and background and all that like my backgrounds aren't they, they, the background doesn't need to be perfect you just need to have one angle that can kind of look like it's perfect kind of thing yeah um so, so do you do a lot of sort of set design in, in the way that you build up the image that you're doing I, I i i wish i wish i sort of studied and paid more attention like art class but yeah, I paint. I, I paint a lot of polyboards and things, and I have, I have um, quite a lot of kind of uh, canvas backdrops. But I don't use them a huge amount. It's, it's. I, I find them quite frustrating because you, you're kind of if you order from people like gravity backdrops, you'll get you'll order like three or four, and you, you only get to see them online, and then they arrive, and they're like four or five hundred quid each. They're they're pretty serious investments. And then I only ever from each three I get, I like like one of them. <laughs> the oh, other wow. sort of, yeah, and I just find it really so I've got loads of loads of canvas backdrops I half like and then you know, a couple that I use for absolutely everything. Um, I need to I need to drop some money on some on some new backdrops. So maybe if you've got any that you don't like, we can make a deal on that and I can take <laughs> yeah. some of your rejects. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, from a uh, obviously right now, 
the the sort of climate of the world is a bit ridiculous. No one knows what's happening tomorrow. People mm. barely understand what happened yesterday. What sort of um, ambition wise going forward? Are you looking to sort of look get back into doing more video work? Um, um, I don't do video work outside of um, directing. I, yeah, I don't really want to uh, like film anyone else's thing. I've got a couple of things like I'm, I may at some point make another film. I've got some things I've written and I, I, I'm sure uh, this sort of quarantine period will probably lead to some, some writing. Um, but I don't really know on those things. I've got a couple of things I may do, just little things to get my... Uh, foot back into that like a little sitcom pilot i i wrote that i i may shoot but no I, in that like no it's it's like either i've i've got two scripts um which will either be made at the kind of one one at about 4 million quid and one at about 1 million quid and they'll either they'll either be made at that level or they won't be made at all so right i don't know you know that's that stuff that like i there's, there are literally interviews with me 10 years ago talking about one of them and going, well, hopefully that's going to be next. So I, I don't want to make a mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> of, um, <laughs> doing that. So if I can ask, the um, you just said that you wouldn't want to shoot something for someone else. Is that down to sort of being a control freak, as you put it? Oh, kind of, but also uh, more uh, like pick your, pick, pick, your, pick your thing, really. I don't think I'd be... I, I don't know. It's the kind of jack of all trades kind of thing. It's like, and I only do ah, I one very specific kind of kind of photography, um, and that's taken me like ten years to start getting right. Just doing basically one photo kind. So yeah, I don't think I would be a particularly good um, either cinematographer or or any of any any of those those things. Something that I don't get uh, very often to ask. Um, photographers because generally speaking they'll sort of duck this question i think people okay. I, I think it's going to apply really well to you um five people you you want to photograph they can be alive or dead but five people you wish you could have a sort of headshot session with <laughs> who picks dead people what like well you know what i mean you know you know what i mean <laughs> okay i mean that would be amazing though um tom hardy <laughs> I would like Tom Hardy. Yeah, Tom Hardy. Yeah, that would be. Um, can they all be Tom Hardy? No. Uh, no <laughs> it's, just, it's like it's it's like those people who. All right, from more uh, character. Just because we're just talking about like Cone Brothers, maybe someone like Stanley Tucci or someone like that. Someone who's going to yeah. be like just super super character. So yeah, either super character or uh, super gravitas is is really good to to photograph. So Idris Elba maybe, like. Yep. He would just well, you've be... got something in common as well because you've both had Corona. <laughs> yeah, Corona buddies. Yeah, Tom Hanks. There you go. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm yeah. not just going to pick Corona people. <laughs> well, no, but but once 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 this passes, me and Idris will be okay. We can both go and hang out without the risk of infecting each other. It'll be it'll be exactly. Fun. Yeah, you can um, cough on each other to your heart's content. Yeah. Uh, who who else? Who would be a really interesting? God, photograph. I, I don't. I, I don't know. Maybe someone with like a. I don't know. I quite like kind of angry, uh, angry looking people, or maybe someone a bit more. I don't know. Maybe someone like Lady Gaga or something. Just like go really someone who would want like a real look. Look. I don't know. Um, but I think the cool thing with someone like Lady Gaga, and I've seen it done a couple of times with with characters like her, where so much of their um, 
their personality is in the aesthetic. When they do a photo shoot where it's really stripped back and it's more about the person than the character, I always find that really interesting. Yeah, like either way, it would be it would be interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, or definitely. Maybe like, That's... like like Billie Eilish. I would like to do a Billie Eilish album cover just because they they look exactly like I wanted album covers to look like twenty years ago. They they've got this really like <laughs> understated aesthetic that I really like. Yeah. All right, so we'll go for four Tom Hardys and an Idris Elba. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, so what I always want to try and do is make sure people know where they can find you at the end of these. So uh, this is your opportunity to give me your websites, your Instagrams, wherever people can find your work. So website is um, headshot.co.uk, head-shot, F-H-O-T.co.uk. Um, and my Instagram is Alan Howard Headshot, A-L-A-N-H-O-W-A-R-D. Headshots, H-E-A-D-S-H-O-T-S. God, I told you I was late to Instagram. It's like, that's why I've got like the longest <laughs> handle in the world. Do you know what? Um, so I actually discovered your website before I discovered your work. And uh-huh. um, I have I have to make a confession. This is a little end to this podcast, but I do have to All make right. a confession. The first time I found your website, I did call you a dick and uh, to <laughs> myself. But I want to explain why. Because yeah. your, your website, Head... Um, hyphen shot.co.uk is a is the is a url i would love to have yeah i was i, and was, I was like I what was a dick he that. got there first yeah but i no, mean there's, cool. there's, there's like 15 other reasons for thinking i'm a dick on my website <laughs> 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 no no it was literally just a url <laughs> okay this has been amazing thank you so much for doing this i hope it's quelled the boredom slightly super fun mate best thing to do okay thank you so much cheers then Once felt I'm done with the defense Throw back and climb over your fence Hide to show, show you that I was a mess So you were shrugging your shoulders I'm closed off, that's what I told you Soon enough, everything started to change Cause there's no going back, no going back There's no going back to your own life Not living in I'm feeling it tonight, riding on the dizzying heights
Riding on the dizzying high 